0: Alright, good morning. So glad to have you here this morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ Church, a church about lifting lives, elevating Christ, a church for those who aren't here yet. I'm Pastor Andrew. I'm glad you're here now, joining us here on site. Perhaps you're joining us in East this morning. Good morning to all of you who are worshiping in the East Auditorium, or perhaps you're online with us this morning. Good morning. Thanks for being part of Christ Church. You're a meaningful part of our worshiping community. Thanks for being here this morning. This morning, we are indeed embarking on a new sermon series, Dinner with Jesus, and it's because it is a specific and special time of the year for us who have a Christian heritage or Christian backdrop. We refer to this time as Lent. Lent is a centuries old tradition in the Christian church being handed down from generation to generation of Christians, where we set aside in the Christian calendar a specific number of weeks leading up to Easter Sunday. These weeks, or this season of Lent, is a special time of added devotion for us. It's a time of introspection, of looking inwardly and doing some good self-examination and good work. It's a time of looking outwardly at the world, the condition of the world, and the realities that we have to live within, and the intersection of faith, and more specifically, specifically, of Jesus Christ with our lives, this world, and our faith tradition. Lent is a season where we spend that much more time in prayer. Perhaps you're doing specialty devotions. I want to encourage you, if you're not doing any specialty devotions, this is a great time to begin that practice of setting aside just 10 minutes, 15 minutes a day during these weeks leading up to Easter Sunday. Otherwise, we also want to encourage you to get into one of our Easter groups. You're going to hear in it all morning long. If you're not in one yet, please come and join an Easter group. You can sign up for it online. You can do it here if you're in the atrium this morning morning, and it's a chance to gather with other Christians so that you don't do this journey alone, but you do this alongside of others. That's part of what this Lenten journey means, is to be connected to the Christian body, and so we want to make that possible for you within the context of our small groups, and so please take seriously this Lenten journey because of everything that Lent is intended to do, and the reason why we celebrate it, the reason why we do it every year is because of all that it is oriented around, is ultimately to help you better know and understand and believe the person of Jesus Christ. That is what Lent is ultimately about. The reason why it's handed down from generation to generation of Christians is to help us better connect and believe the person of Jesus as we once again revisit his story as he walks to the cross, to the tomb, and then finally to Easter Sunday. So please take this time of Lent seriously and be with us over these next number of weeks to help guide us along our journey this particular Lenten season. We're doing sermon series called Dinner with Jesus. Should be pretty fun. It's going to be a chance where we are looking at a variety of stories or vignettes where Jesus shares a meal with people, where Jesus sits down and breaks bread with people and and experiences conversation and, and meaningful moments together. I don't know about you and your household, but in my house, dinner time is an actually very important ritual in our house. It brings us together as a family. There's a legacy piece to it. We share stories about the day, and undoubtedly something funny or quirky happens during dinner. For as much as we recount the memories of the day, we also tend to make memories during dinner. And this is true when we get into the Bible with Jesus as well. You see, dinner is ultimately far more than just a meal. Dinner with friends, dinner with family, dinner with other people is more than just slamming down some pizza. It's about conversation and faith and life and seeing how those all intersect with one another. This is particularly true when Jesus shows up in the scriptures. I mean, when Jesus shows up to a dinner in the scriptures, things really get ramped up. I was trying to capture, if you were to boil down and get a sense of what happens when Jesus shows up in these vignettes and in these stories, two things. One of two things happens. Either stories begin to be told, that is to say that Jesus begins to preach, Jesus begins to teach. He might tell a parable as an example, a story that helps us better understand ourselves and this world. And so we'll be traveling through and we'll be seeing some of the parables That Jesus shares with us, even so much as he uses parables talking about dinner and feasts and banquets. And yet at other times, we're going to look at some of the stories where the stories aren't just simply told, but they actually unfold right in front of us as the events of the characters, as the people interact with Jesus, some amazing and incredible things, miraculous things even, begin to happen in people's lives. In this Lenten season, We're going to study and better know Jesus by listening and and, and understanding what are the stories that he tells and what are the stories that are created when Jesus Christ sits down with ordinary people like us and spends time breaking bread, having dinner together. Our first story is a good example of this, where something rather significant happens. It's one of the more famous stories in the Bible that have to do with Jesus. You'll see why very quickly. His miracle tends to garner a little bit of attention. But the first story is the wedding at Cana. Wedding at Cana. This is our first story. Let's jump in. It begins in the Gospel of John. Now, just a reminder for you, a gospel is a firsthand eyewitness account of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. So, whenever we're talking about a gospel, we're very specifically narrowing in on Jesus and his person. So, over the next number of weeks, we're going to spend a lot of time in the gospels. This is one of the four gospels, the Gospel of John, and this is going to be happening. This particular story comes to us in the second chapter. That is to say, it comes towards the very, very beginning of the Gospel of John. There's a whole lot more yet to come in the gospel. But this story happens as it's just getting started. That's important to note. We'll talk about it again in a moment. Here's how it starts, though, in John chapter 2, verse 1. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother, that would be Mary, Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. Two important things that I want to highlight for you right away in the very first two verses. It has to do with the context of the story itself. Two important things to note. The first is that because we are at the beginning of the Gospel of John, because this is in chapter 2, chapter 1 had to do with Jesus garnering and gathering some disciples. This is the very beginning of his ministry, and so he went and he began to invite others alongside of him to participate in what is going to be unfolding as his ministry as an adult man. He has gotten to know and is getting to know these disciples. Sometimes we refer to these particular disciples as the 12 disciples, though there certainly would have been more disciples alongside of him. Disciple means student or learner. And yet in the first chapter we see Jesus is specifically calling Philip and Nathaniel. He's calling Andrew and Peter and some of the other big names that we will track with over the number of stories coming in front of us. But the disciples are just now getting to know Jesus. They don't have the background that they will have at the end of the Gospel of John. They just kind of know this radical, itinerant, and probably kind of dirty, smelly preacher who just walks the countryside and said, Come follow me, and I'm going to teach and do some incredible things. You want to be a part of this. And so this is the beginning of their relationship with him. The second thing that's important to note about the context is to recognize where this story is going to take place. It's taking place at a party. The disciples don't know Jesus that well yet, so the first thing Jesus does is say, well, come hang out with me, my relatives, my family. Let's go to a party, and we'll get to know one another. Now, this is particularly interesting that Jesus actually spends time at a party. Do you ever think about that before? God likes parties. Jesus likes celebrations. And I don't know about you, but it is often at those celebratory moments in life that God or Jesus Christ Himself actually feels specifically close. Do you ever notice that? Like, think about those mountaintop moments you guys know when I use that phrase the mountaintop moments in our life or the mountaintop moments of our faith they're great highlights in our life and at those moments it's so clear to us it's so cool that we can actually get a sense that Jesus or God is actually present with us celebrating with us he's close to us in those mountaintop moments I think back to my own marriage uh, where uh, years ago it was literally on this stage and I felt as I was getting married to my wife God's presence and his blessing and that he was there. I've felt him at those mountaintop moments each time that my kids have come into the world. When I've held one of my daughters for the first time, I've got three of them. And each time I hold them for the first time, and they're screaming and kicking and wailing, and they're turning blue into pink, and all things are happening. And at this incredible moment, I feel God close, smiling, celebrating with me. It is important to note for us as Christians. Your God celebrates and participates in those highlight, incredible moments in your life. And here is one of those examples. And yet bear in mind, for as much as there are parties that God is a part of and we are excited at those wonderful moments... Isn't it true that so often our parties can often quickly move into the realm of problems? For as much as we have mountaintop moments, have you ever noticed that there is often a very steep decline on the other side of a mountain? For as much as we have mountaintop moments, we also have valleys in our lives. And we're going to see that happening, well, now. The wine supply ran out. The open bar is closed. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, hey, they have no more wine. Now, moms are really good at this. You have a knack for this. Dads have this capacity, too, of saying something without saying something or saying something over here but meaning something more significant. She's saying they have no more wine, and what's implied Well, you better get active on that, buddy. Jesus, time to step up to the plate. you got to fix this problem. we we got to address the issue here. And it really is actually quite a problem. This is no small problem. This is more than just simply the bush light ran out, okay? This is actually substantial when you consider the context of the ancient Near East. You see, in the ancient Near East, and even to this very day, one of the greatest cultural value sets that forms part of the foundation for the way of life in the Middle East is the concept and the principle of hospitality. The importance of hospitality cannot be underscored enough in Jesus' day and even in modern day. For the wine to run out at a celebration is more than just simply aw shucks I can't get another refill this is saying oh my goodness the reputation of the bride the groom and by extension of them their extended family the parents, the grandparents the very legacy of mutual families and even to the point of a village can be intertwined with the reality that an egregious error has been made. There's not enough wine. This is crossing off one of the greatest and most substantial value sets in that day and age. More than just simply the bar is closed is what's happening here. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Mary is giving Jesus the elbow and saying, Hey! There's no more wine. Do something about it. Jesus does have a response, but his response is a bit curious on first read. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time that I read this is This causes me to stop, to pause. It's not what I would expect from Jesus. As someone who grew up in the church body, Jesus' reputation, I guess, goes in front of him. And so what I expect from this is Jesus to roll up his sleeves and say, yep, I'm on it, let's tackle that problem. But that's not exactly what he does, is it? No. He says, that's not our problem. And more specifically, my time has not yet come. As a reader, this causes me to stop and get nervous because the question becomes in my head, well, what about my problems? Is Jesus going to look at me? Is He going to let my family, my world, and is he going to say that's not my problem? My time has not yet come? And all of a sudden I get nervous about this because I thought Jesus was here to help address the problem. This is where biblical scholarship and spending time understanding the Bible and the author makes a difference for us. There's a line in here, my time has not yet come. This is where our understanding must hinge and move to. This particular phrase is used five different times in the gospels and each time it is used, it is a moment of significance. Each other time it is used, out of those five, all five have to do with the cross and his resurrection. All other uses, all five of them are anchored, tethered, and in close proximity to his arrest to the burden of his beating impending upon him, to the reality that evil and him are about to go toe-to-toe. You see, this phrase, my time has not yet come, is calling us forward. It's beckoning us. It's pulling us towards Easter, more specifically towards the cross right before Easter morning. This phrase is capturing and pointing us not to just one small or specific problem like the beer running out, but the totality of human frailty to the big picture and the big problem of sin, death, and the devil. This is a moment in the very beginning of John where we can already see Jesus Christ laser-focused with intent upon his mission, his calling, what he has come here to do and accomplish, and who he is. He is the one who will address the problem that only he can address. He is the one who is going to take upon himself not just simply the small, the mundane, or even some of the problems that cause great damage in our lives. No, he is here to take upon the totality, the fullness of every problem ever in the history of mankind, past, present, future. This is Jesus not simply being callous. That's not what's happening here. This is Jesus anchoring us as the readers in the cross that is out in front of him. We must not, as Christian people, make the mistake of valuing and and identifying and being focused on the trees and miss out on the forest. This does not diminish your personal or my personal problems. This does not mean that Jesus doesn't care about the details of your life. That is not what I am saying. It is to recognize that as much as Jesus is involved and present and participating in our lives, even in the small stuff, Make no mistake, he has come for the big picture. Not just to simply help you in one specific thing, but to help you and all people to redeem you and to redeem the entirety of the world. That is worth pursuing. But the story goes on. Standing nearby were six stone jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. That's a lot of water. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. And when the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out, take some to the master of the ceremonies. And so the servants follow his instructions. When the master of the ceremonies, the steward, the guy who's in charge, when he tastes the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though, of course, the servants knew, as do we as the readers, He calls the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everybody's had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you've kept the best until now. uh, Most people start off with craft brews and then move to Miller Lite. You kept the top shelf, the specialty editions till now wow, this is the good stuff you saved. That's what's happening there. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. We'll come back to this in just a moment. After the wedding, Jesus went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and that concludes our story. Now, there are a variety of themes that we could spend time in teasing out in this story. To be honest with you, it is absolutely jam-packed with stuff. We already talked about how God is present in the reality of parties, that Jesus shows up at the high moments of our lives, yes, but he's also present in the pain. He's also present in the suffering. Note that for as much as Jesus is there at the party moment and the celebration, he is just as present in the problem. In fact, it is actually in the problem that he begins to work and move and things begin to change. That's important to note. You can tease that out Notice the awareness, the the steward, the guy who's in charge, the the bridegroom, and and the wedding party themselves don't even know or realize that God is moving in the background. God's not making a flashy move here, an overt, big, in-your-face kind of thing, but he's actually working behind the scenes. So also with our own lives, how often God works behind the scenes. There's more to be said there. Notice the abundance, the generosity. I mentioned there's a lot of water there. God doesn't do anything small. He didn't just turn a single glass into wine. He turned a whole bunch of water and a wine, and that speaks to the character of generosity and abundance that we find with God. We could spend more time on that. We could spend time talking about how the best wine is the last wine, that is to say that the best is still out in front of us. There's something there about heaven being still out in front of us, that the best is yet to come. The best part of the party is yet to come for you and for me. We could spend more time talking about that. There's also the reality of miraculous signs, moments where we begin to see Jesus exhibiting some supernatural abilities, and specifically how this is the very first time that we notice him doing this that there is more to come. There is more to happen in the life of Jesus Christ, and as a result, more to happen in the lives of his disciples and the lives of his people. There's just so much in this story. Do you get a sense of that? And yet, of all the various things that we could talk about, even the glory of God That is to say, the intersection of Jesus' own divinity, the incarnation of the living eternal God wrapped in flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, we could spend time talking about the eternal and almighty God shows up in a God-man that is actually not the heartbeat of this story. The most significant piece of this story has to do with Jesus revealing himself. Jesus Christ reveals himself. He wants to be known. He's not hiding, but in fact pulls back the curtain. He gives a glimpse. He invites the servants. He invites Mary. He invites the disciples to see him for who he is, what he can do, what he is here to do of all of the most significant things that happen in the story, there's nothing more significant than the Christian tenet. This is one of the bedrocks of our faith, the idea that God, in the person of Jesus Christ, is revealing himself, making himself known to people, to his disciples. To you and to me. Jesus Christ makes himself known not in big and flashy ways, not in the the mountaintop with thunder and lightning. No, no, no. Where does Jesus reveal himself? In addressing the problem, facing the issues. Stepping close and being made real and revealing himself in the challenges, the tensions, and the difficulties that you face. Jesus reveals himself in the cross, not on a glorious throne far away, but on the cross in pain and in suffering. Jesus says, I am here, I am present, and I am working. Now, let me be clear. Just because Jesus reveals himself in dark, difficult, and hard moments does not mean that he will fix our problems. Do not mishear me. Jesus is not here just simply to run around and fix our problems. That's up to him. Sometimes he will, and sometimes he won't. Sometimes you'll be praying that the red light turn to green so you make the meeting on time. In other times, you get the diagnosis that you will have to bear for the rest of your life. The important thing here is not the reality of our difficulties or problems. Christ has already come to solve the ultimate big-picture problem, and yet he is choosing to reveal himself and be present with you For you, that you might endure, that you might move through the problems and the difficulties, that you might have the strength and the courage and the hope, the faith to know His love and grace and compassion, especially in the difficult problems. Jesus chooses to reveal himself in our difficult moments so that we might believe in him, so that we might be moved to faith, believing in him and the ultimate mission of redemption which he has won and accomplished for you. You see, the hope and the intent of self-revelation, Jesus reveal himself, is, is to move people to believe, to move disciples to faith. Jesus reveals himself so that you would believe. And in doing so, Get a glimpse of the face of God. His love for you. His grace for you. God is revealing himself to this very day. Jesus is revealing himself to this very day. He does so in the scriptures, he does so in the sacraments, he does so in and through his church that more people might know and believe and become his disciple. He has done that throughout the generations, going all the way back to the first disciples. And he has done that now for you. For you too. My prayer is, is that in these coming weeks, We will indeed grow in our faith. We will grow in our belief. And we will see him in the cross and through the cross to Easter morning. Please come and be a part of it. Amen. Good. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks and praise that in this day you do reveal yourself. Jesus, you have chosen to reveal yourself throughout the ages to your disciples That we might be moved to faith and in being moved to faith that we might know you take comfort in you courage in you strength from you that we might have the courage to face the trials and difficulties of today knowing that you have come not just simply for the day today but you have come for all of every day for the finality of heaven itself you have come to address the greatest problems, sin, death, and the devil. And through your cross, you have made yourself known, revealed yourself, your love, your forgiveness, and your glory. We as the disciples of today bear witness to this and glorify you, praise you, and worship you, And we take confidence that as we face the trials of today, we do so in light of the resurrection, in light of Easter Sunday, in light of what is out in front of us, knowing that the best is even yet to come. Strengthen us then in our faith as we we face the difficulties of today. Encourage us and move in us. Bring us to greater and further faith. Use this Lenten season, we ask and pray, God, to grow us, to love us, forgive us, and bring us to Easter Sunday, where we will join once again in the great celebration of your greatest victory. We ask and we pray this, Jesus, in your holy and in your precious name. Amen.